Welcome back to Baghdadiya. I'm your host, Nina Musa, and it is with great pleasure that I announce our following podcast guest, Sama Arishaibi. Born in Basra to an Iraqi father and Palestinian mother, Sama is based in the U.S., where she is professor and co-chair of photography, video, and imaging at the University of Arizona, Tucson. As an artist, Sema's photographs and videos make use of her own body as a site of performance. In these works, she is often considering the gendered impacts of war and migration. Sema's work has also been featured in many biennales, as well as other solo exhibitions, like at Cornell's Johnson Museum of Art. She was awarded the Fulbright Scholar Fellowship in 2014, and more recently, in 2021, was also named a Guggenheim Fellow for her work in photography. I'm incredibly excited to share this episode with you all, and hopefully you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed speaking with Summer. Thank you for listening, and enjoy! Congratulations about the Guggenheim Fellowship. That is amazing news. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure you're, like, so excited. Like, I mean, as I am for you, that is, I'm so excited that I get to speak with you after you've just found out about that. Um, So if you don't mind, I'll ask a couple questions about that later on. Yeah, I mean, ask whatever you want. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I know you gave me questions, but just feel free. And if I don't really know, I'll just say <laughs> it's fair enough. Ask whatever um, you like. I mean, there's no, there's nothing to worry about. I, I, I try to come to like podcasts just being really open and and not trying to like have anything scripted, you know. So that yeah. sounds great. Um, so I guess I'll just it's jump nice right in. Nice to meet there. you. How yeah, you I'm so, so smart and so together and so self-possessed and everything. I'm so sorry. young. Thank I wish you. all my students were like you. I was like reading your whole thing from beginning to end. I'm like, how old? Are, how old? Are you? <laughs> <laughs> yes. oh, thank you so where, much. Where are you going to college? That's a good question. <laughs> You're applying now, right? You're 17. Yeah. I am applying now, and it's definitely an interesting year, so I is undecided at the moment, um, but hopefully I'll know in the coming weeks, so yeah. Where did you apply? Uh, I applied to a lot of schools. I sort of um, threw my best. You don't want to say reporting, I understand, don't worry. Well, I mean, it's like, um, yeah, I mean, I applied to a lot of schools, so we'll see what happens um, with them. I applied, like, in, in New York, like, I applied to, like, NYU and, like, Syracuse and Cornell, like. Um, for art or something else? For, uh, I applied for Middle Eastern Studies, so, and Women and Gender Studies, because those are, like, my two biggest You told me, I, those were all my people. I could completely hook you up at NYU. <laughs> I called you before, yeah. Um, yeah, so. I, think, like, I have a feeling you'll just, you'll do just fine. No worries. <laughs> crossing my fingers so we'll see what happens with that oh interesting um, you have such a similar identity to me that you're Iraqi Palestinian like this so your mama's family is from Palestine and they might immigrated to I mean through Lebanon like, yeah Lebanon? Yeah? Okay. yeah and then wow. she went to a lycée there and I ended up going to a lycée here um and then my dad's Iraqi and that he just came has, I can't believe you have my same identity I know I've never met anyone with just like me normally it's like switched around or something like that uh, Neda Shabut, art historian, I, like she's also like us. She's her father's Iraqi, her mom's Palestinian. She I, never talks about it because she really identifies as an Iraqi because uh, she was born and raised there her whole life. But yeah, when when she introduces me at talk, she's always like, "I also have a Palestinian mother," you know. So. I actually did reach out to her, um, but she's having a bit of a busy year, so she was. She always has a busy year. That's yeah. Neda. She's a very busy woman. Um, but I'm so excited to get the chance to speak with you. Like, oh, I, it's a dream come true for me, especially since, well, we actually have like your book about like Sisida at my house. So um, it wasn't like I was unfamiliar with your work before. And so it was really cool. Um, yeah, to like get to meet you now. It's a super full circle moment. Yeah. Um, yeah. And your mom just bought one of my works. I know. She was like, um, she was excited because she's like, now we bought it right before your value goes skyrocketing. <laughs> the timing is good. <laughs> yeah, it's a good timing. Great timing. Um, so, well, have you always wanted to be an artist? Like, and how did you decide that this is what you wanted to pursue for? Uh, okay, I didn't, I didn't know this idea of an artist to me was a painter, right? Mm-hmm. So, my mom is an incredible painter, as is my oldest brother. And so to me, they were always the artists in the family, right? And my mom wanted to study art when she was young. 
these are very complicated things to do as an Iraqi, I mean, she's Palestinian, but growing up in Iraq, her father said, you know, people who send their children to art school are those who don't have the means to like have them have a real life. So she wasn't allowed to pursue that, but she never stopped painting. And she's also a designer and she makes incredible like work. I mean, she's, she's a creative being, right? And my brother had her very natural talent with through his hands of making things. So I just thought that that was them, you know? And um, I think I was much more politically aligned, but I always loved performance art growing up. I really loved dance, singing, music. I was doing all of that stuff. Of course, my parents told me at a very young age that I could never pursue those things professionally. They were our parents in that way. And um, so I, I, don't, I didn't think that that was even a road, right? And I learned photography very young because my father was an avid, you know, hobbyist photographer with like traditional cameras, 35 millimeters. He loved them and he 35 taught- millimeter. There you go, girl. <laughs> there you are. I taught my son this last year. Um, yeah, so I learned photography, but no one, I guess in those days, they just didn't call that art yet, or at least it didn't come to us in the Middle East that that was like an art world. Um, it was more traditional there. So it was like more painting and like the traditional craft arts were art. Um, so yeah, I learned photography really young. And then I, I definitely wanted to study music. I went to college for that first in opera, but uh, I didn't have all of the, I don't know. I just couldn't deal with the competitiveness of it. It was very difficult, not talking to people, saving your voice. It really wasn't for me. And the story is even more complex than that because that's when I was undocumented. So in the United States, so it was just financially very hard to be in school. So I stopped being in school and just waitress and kind of took classes randomly here and there in photography. And even then I wasn't quite convinced that it was art, right? So I wanted to be a war photojournalist. I really wanted to go back to the Middle East, be stationed in Iraq or Palestine and deal the topics of war. Um, it was the issues that really interested me. And, you know, I thought maybe through the medium of photography, I could bring light to it. It's very naive, like what a photojournalist can or can't do. And I, I don't know, eventually I went to Columbia College and art school. And you know, at Columbia in those days, primarily people were studying photography that was with me to be fashion photographers or in the commercial realm, lots of people going into journalism. And I just never could make that work. I went there for that with that intention, but I was constantly putting myself in the picture and like writing on the walls or writing on my body. and asked my mom to make me costumes. And of course my teachers were like, okay, this is not journalism or photojournalism, nor is it commercial, nor is it fashion. Like what, you know, what is this, right? And I, I really give credit to John White, who is you know, my photojournalism professor, really like amazing photographer, Pulitzer Prize winning photographer. And he's like, I just think you're an artist. And it was very hard for me still that to hear that and to like, kind of connect what that meant because I felt like that was what my mom and my brother were. And artists had these temperaments that were a certain way and they read certain things and they did certain things. I didn't have a very expanded view, you know, and it was before the internet. So it's not like I go look up what is an artist, right? And, you know, even the photographers that I really enjoyed or Anyway, the ones I was taught at first that I really enjoyed still seemed to be in the documentary side. And it really wasn't until I, was, I met, you know, Carrie Mae Weems' work and Lorna Simpson's work that I realized that you could actually talk about very political work, talk about political ideas and social justice and even your own experience and represent that and use your body and, and construct a stage and construct a space that's when I started realizing and it's probably like my junior senior years I started making that connection so no I wasn't pursuing to be an artist at all and it just happened and that's yeah I mean I guess it was always happening it was but like I a never knew it. yeah I never knew it. it I mean I didn't no guidance counselor sat down with me and said this is what you would do right like I 
I, I mean, I knew a lot of artists growing up. I, I my brothers, friends, everything. But to me, they were all people who could paint and draw. And actually, I don't have that talent. I can't paint very well or draw very well. And when you go to art school, you have those classes at the at the you know freshman year, and those are my worst classes. And <laughs> I really felt like, you know, I could barely hold a pencil. I when I was in, in elementary school, the teacher used to like tape my hand to the pencil because I hold my pencil like this, right? Oh. And I have something called dysgraphia where my brain and my small motor skills don't like connect. And so to me, how could you be an artist if you couldn't do the most basic thing, which is draw? I mean, I draw now, I have my journals and stuff, but no one would, <laughs> no one can look at those things. Like I, I they just help me like, yeah, they're for me to get ideas. Like I kind of sketch out my concepts. My, you know, I, I still like doing that, but I couldn't do it but in the camera or a computer. So I really, to me, I needed a mechanism that could get my concepts through. So one was my body, very performative. And I could always do that. I was always really good at that. It's like always do that through high school, junior high, but a camera and video, right? So like editing, I had to have a, a, a machine of some kind to help me get my concepts through. I just couldn't organically render it through my hands especially because of the dysgraphia. Hmm. Well, I'm very fascinated by the way that you do use your body in your work. And I think that it's especially interesting to me because we only have one body, right? And so to be able to communicate many different meanings through one body is impressive. And so how do you go about communicating meaning through your body and like, or communicating any sort of concept or idea with only your body as like a medium? I, again, I think it started young because I got into performance work, right? And so, and then when I'm talking about performance work when I was young, I'm talking about operas, plays, and now you're embodying something that was written maybe hundreds, of, if not thousands of years ago, right? And you have to take on this character. Um, but I think it connected for me because you know, I, I had these issues and concepts and ideas that I want to talk about. I mean, primarily the war in Iraq and the injustice in Palestine. And again, this is pre-internet. So when you want to talk about it, you're coming from personal experience. You can't just like point to some article or take someone to a website or a blog. You know, there's some international newspapers, but no one read those unless you went out to go find them, buy them. So whatever it was coming through about that part of the world was coming through the media and not very often and always very wrong and very stilted and a horrifying representation about the complexities of what was going on and uh, the complicity of the United States in the involvement in those spaces. And so I just, and I'd grown up there. So I just knew that these were not besides knowing everything that was going on, I was like, these are not even an accurate representation of what people look like, what culture's like, what life is like there and how crude that depiction was. And so I wanted to fight it again. I thought, okay, if I was a war photographer or, you know, a documentary photographer, I'll go there. I'll make a better story. But in that immediate space, how could I do that? Right. But to perform it, but to somehow ignite a conversation about the sub subjects by doing work through my body. And I, I wasn't very sophisticated at knowing how at that time. I mean, I was already working my body and then I met Carrie May, well, I didn't meet her, but I met her work. And uh, I mean, she was also a visiting artist at my school. So I, I did get her to see her speak. And I'm like, yeah, this is what I am, what I'm kind of doing, right, in a way. And it kind of just gave me, uh, I don't know, it just, you know, it gave me some validity that there was something there, you know, and it was okay to do because I think a lot of people thought what I was doing was random, right? Like, what is this, <laughs> you know? Um, and I was living in Chicago and there was really important things in Chicago that m mattered to me, like the economic and social and racial justice issues. And I did, I tried I, as a, photojournalism student, I tried to go into the neighborhoods. I was interested. I met people. But every time I'd hear a story, it would reflect back to my story, right? When I'd hear about impoverished conditions, when I heard about, you know, young people not having a chance, it just made me connect like, oh, I know what this is. This is like what we experienced, but in this different way. So if anything, it just inspired me more 
to kind of um, tell those stories. And I don't know, I just started asking my mom. My mom's a great designer. She makes clothes. I would give her ideas about, I mean, I don't think she ever understood what I was doing. I'm quite sure she understands what I'm doing now. But I like tell, you know, I'm like, this is what I want. Like, you know, and we would talk about it. I'm like, how do I make the dress more get out of just being a dress and more of a costume? How do I have it like embody these kinds of ideas? And we collaborate and she would send things and I would wear them and I would, you know, write on my body or write on the wall. I was very crude about it in the beginning, you know, but it was the foundation of what I do now. And I was doing that as an undergrad. And uh, I had a lot of landlords that, you know, asked me to move out. because. <laughs> <laughs> Um, which was fine. I pay, I always painted everything over, but you know, when they would come in for like, they're like, check, <laughs> what is this? Um, and yeah, when you go to school that had a lot of fashion, people kind of wanted to put this into the idea of storytelling and fashion, but I was never interested in selling something that was a material capitalist thing. Like I was really into the concepts and there were definitely faculty there that could have that conversation. There was definitely students that were there, my friends, but I don't know if everyone quite un, quite got what it is because back in those days, Columbia just started getting a graduate program. And so it really, everyone said they were an artist because they were doing it a creative means, but they didn't really know what that was. And I think around 9-11 is when it really kind of all like came together. I mean, I, I, I was graduated at that point, two or three years. I had become a mother over that time. You know, I married my husband and had my first kid. And then 9-11 happened. And then the talk about war with Iraq started. And it was all just like kind of overnight that these concepts that I was having that I couldn't quite put into words and what I wanted to do with my work um, really came together. And I just made a decision. I found out that it was like two weeks to apply to grad school before all the deadlines were cut. And in those two weeks, I, I applied to one program because I was already living in Colorado. My husband was getting his PhDs. I knew we couldn't move. So I, I applied to CU Boulder and that happened to turn out to be the best place for me to go for a lot of things that was going on. That is so cool. Well, as someone who deals with like similar subjects in your different works, right? how do you go about coming up with new ideas? And as like a second question, how do you, like when you set out to create, do you set out with the intention of telling a specific story or does the story like arise as you create? Cause yeah. So you're talking about like concept? Yeah. Like, like, how do you deal with the concept? Like what's the concept development? Yeah. Uh, it's not an easy answer. I'm, I'm also not very uh, concise person. I talk. Oh, so no, I love it. The truth of, the, of it is the same way I kind of communicate is the way I arrive at everything. I mean, it comes from everywhere. So if you look, listen, listen to me in previous interviews, I'll say emphatically, this is how it happens. Or I'll say, this is how it happens. But <laughs> actually all those things. Uh, and as you get older, you're, you're a little bit more honest about how it, how it happens. Um, okay. At a very organic level, I, I have dreams a lot that gives me visual texture. I, I see things and um, I don't know what they are or what they mean, but I have these dreams. But I hate saying this because then my students say, oh, that I'm not a real artist. You have these dreams, these premonitions. I'm like, nothing that I have. have I, I have certain projects that look a lot like my dreams, but it's usually a start and that they're not always in the beginning. Sometimes I get them later when I'm involved in a project. I'm also an academic. So I research, I read, um, you know, but over the years, like I have sort of figured out my process a little bit more. So I know when something catches me or my interest, I'm interested in everything, but something that very specifically catches my interest in a different way, it kind of hits in a different way in my body. And I, you know, if it's a podcast, I'd be rewinding it. Or if it's uh, something I listen to on a radio or just an idea, I'd be stopping and like taking a note on my phone. Or I can't, I also believe in carrying a journal everywhere I go. I have, you know, millions of these old moleskins. And 
you know, I go to artist talks, I go to art shows. I don't really get a lot of inspiration from that. Um, even though like a lot of professors will say, that's where you go. But, but I do, I do know that sometimes it makes me think about, I, I reflect it back to my own thing. So sometimes it makes me think about, uh, you know, a creative problem and I haven't quite figured out. Um, more than anything though, just sometimes the act of like writing and sketching, most of it's trash, but like, you know, at some point something might come out that's interesting, but I think it's more like the committed space to take some time and like let the rest of the world fall away. So what I have done over the years to get to that place as a shortcut is walking. I'm a walker and it's a big part of my practice. And, you know, like meditation or prayer or dance or anything else that you do, it takes practice to kind of be very present in yourself. Um, I have exercises. I teach, I teach a class on walking as a creative art practice. Um, so like just walking down the street that you've done a million times, but list, but only paying attention to one sense, right? Like touch or hearing. It, it, it evokes different parts of your brain. It gets you very connected to place. It gets you very connected to yourself. Um, and that also helps generate ideas. Um, and then there's just sort of clusters that you are like kind of a thing that you're doing in your work for a while and you finish that project, but you're still thinking about the major underpinnings of that work. So while you're making that work, it might lead you to this idea and that idea, but you can't quite bring it to this project without destroying it. So again, you record it and you know that's an interest that might take you somewhere else. So that's the real truth of it. It's, it's a combination of all of that. I really enjoyed that explanation. I think the walk part and especially focusing on the different senses was really interesting. I, that's why I teach my students because it's an active thing that you can do. It's not like telling a student to go to a library or go to more art shows or, you know, uh, just sketch like, it is an active thing that you do that reaps incredible benefit immediately. It, we are so eyes dependent, we're so sight dependent, but we almost don't see because we see so much and our brain has to do all the stuff when we're seeing. So when you're forcing a different sense, you are embodied in your physical being, your, your psychological being has to be there to interpret it, right, for you, how you're experiencing it. So it is you, but it also is what's around you. And those things connect. And because you're disrupting the space that you normally are not even thinking about that much, it just shifts. It's incredible, honestly, just as an experience to do, but it it's one of the best ways to solve problems, generate ideas, experience where you are. I travel a lot. So I don't want to make photographs or work or images that become very touristic or what everybody does when they're new somewhere. And I also don't want to get bored where I live and like just, you know, your, your environment really should be informing you, right? Not to make work about that environment necessarily, but who are you in it? What's that positionality that you occupy, right? And walking is that. That's so, yeah. I love the way that you phrase that, like that, how we see so much that oftentimes like we don't see anything at all. Cause I think that is, yeah. Thinking about it, it's very true. Cause you don't appreciate uh, anything like your surroundings unless you're actively thinking about them. Or at least for me, I, it seems to be the case. Um, and so as I imagine it does, and like from reading about you and listening to you speak before, um, uh, yeah, I imagine it does. How does your identity as a Palestinian Iraqi individual and also your identity, like your gender identity as a woman, um, influence your work and like your life perspectives and just, um, yeah, like the work you do? Well, that's everything, right? Yeah. <laughs> For I mean, me, that's everything. Who you are, is yeah, it, not right? every artist that, you know, is from a certain place makes work about that place or their representation of their idea uh, identity. But I don't know. I think when you have been stripped of that, you know, your life location, your life chances, when you've always had to negotiate who you are, sorry, I got a little thing on my, okay. You negotiate who you are, you, 
you're always aware of who you are. I mean, you're a young person. I'm sure you're aware of, uh, you know, reflecting who you are and thinking about what you want next and, and that being, but when you're really stripped of it in your own lifetime, like you grew up in a war and then you're stripped of your family and your home and just your even safety, your comfort as a young person, like, oh, you know, I'm not sure if there'll be a bomb that will land on one of my parents today, right? My parents stopped being in the same car. They would like take separate cars because if one of them died, one of them had to be the kids. And those were decisions all the time. You, you have to question, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to my family, my people? And, you know, you get a little bit older, you read more, you think about it. Um, yeah, you get a little enraged, you get angry. And especially when you live in a place in the United States where so many people don't know the root causes of those issues and they have a very flattened idea of who you are. Gender comes into it in a whole other level because uh, in the US, again, the way that uh, war is often packaged in the Middle East and the justification the United States had in war is because it's a backwards place and that's an oppressed place for women and they conflate these ideas of exporting democracy and women's rights and and it's crap and I'm not saying that there isn't countries in within the Middle East and North Africa that don't need to progress on women's rights and, and queer rights for example but we have a lot of issues here I mean in the United States Right now, as we speak, people are desperately fighting for equality for Asian Americans. My husband's black, my sons are black, right? Like they are still, I still fear for their life every time they leave the house. Um, and I don't equate uh, women's you know, rights with how naked you can be or how little clothing you could be or that your hair is showing or not showing. I think that's very superficial. You know, I think about uh, workplace, you know, um, uh, safety, laws that protect you, justice, things that you can get. And I, I came from a country, Iraq, that had some of the best rights for women historically ever, which is completely eroded once the United States invaded, right? And so, and, and, and legally eroded, like through laws, through the, you know, secretary and governments that they enshrine into power. And so it's, it's always complicated when people come talk to me um, about the issues of my work and they want to see very, very, I'll say Western people primarily want to see it through a very specific lens and everything that I'm talking about, right? Occupation, justice, human rights, a right to just to safety, right? To, to not, to resources, to be able to be, live on one's land, to access their own country. The most basic things that people here take for granted, you know, they come back to the hijab or they come back to the perception of my oppression through my gender and it's not the world I grew up in. And so the, the complexity that exists in the United States for women exists there too, right? I have students who grew up in families that are very conservative, um, religiously or not. These people can be white skinned, blonde hair and blue eyed. They also could be black. It depends on what, you know, what their background is. But reminds me of the same stories of women I've met in, in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> or maybe even Iraq, but they're here, right? And they are Americans and they have the same, you know, struggles that I hear of, and they also have other struggles. And so um, it's very weird when everyone always just wants to reflect any struggle that I must have comes through this I backwardness that the Middle East represents when it comes to women. I grew up in a family that all my aunts mar uh, went to college before they married. Um, you know, I believe my grandfather was an extraordinary feminist. My father never told me I couldn't do this or this. He's always encouraged me to do everything. I, my mother, my grandmother, my grandmother started wearing a hijab after when she was really old. 
you know, but I didn't grow up with that. Right. And that's not what I saw around me in the streets. You know, it's the Middle East. It can be both ways. I mean, this hijab thing kind of came in 80s, 90s. This is not something of my parents' generation. So I'm like, you know, 47. That's their eight, 48. I really don't know. Born in 73. <laughs> <laughs> this is what happens yeah, when you get older. Yeah. You don't know anymore. Um, but yeah, it's like, it's not the only subject. And I know it's a very important subject. And in certain countries, it's the only subject because it means much more. And even in Iraq now, it means more than it ever did because it has become both a religious and political and oppressive tool, but it wasn't that growing up. So it's not my issue. It's not the generation I grew up in. And honestly, how people dress is not the most interesting thing to me, whether it's here in the United States or somewhere else. I just feel like that's a very personal choice. I know it's not personal choice for all women, Sometimes it's reflected by somebody else. But anyway, to back to your question. Um, I, I mean, in, in the strongest sense, there are things that I'm very interested in that has been my lifetime struggle, but also probably I was always gonna do this work because I was raised with it, right? My mother is a displaced person. My mother is a refugee. And Palestinians that grow up outside of their homeland, for the most part, that have no right of return, are always talking about that. So I grew up with that narrative. And then not much later, the war in Iraq, Iran started, and then we became refugees again. So it's my life story. And when you become older, you read and you think about all these people that are displaced for different reasons, right? Not all that's apparently political, but resources, climate change, and the inherently is political reasons, right? So, yeah, I don't know. No. Yeah. Kind of go on, but yeah. I like that answer. And I think that, you know, it's really interesting because as you speak, I'm I'm reminded of your project, Sisida, because um, oftentimes, you know, you mention how stories remind you of what goes on back home and like how everything is sort of like paralleled in that like these issues here are not well the issues in the middle east are not unique to the middle east they ongo in every other story here yeah Yeah. so beyond they're imperial stories they're also yeah so i think no no um it sort of reminds me of like our connectivity to the rest of the world and to each other which i think seems to be a large part of what that project entailed um or yeah our connection to one another. you know it's also interesting because um unlike a lot of my other projects where there was some pre-visualization or formation of like what i was going to pursue by the time i got to making it i allowed myself it's also marks a time that i changed my practice because i allowed myself to work without conditions for two or three years, not knowing what a project would be and not having to know what it's going to be and not even knowing when it's going to end. Um, and it was, how that happened was very, um, I don't know, it was just very real, very organic. It wasn't like a decision, oh, I'm gonna do it this kind of way. But at that point in my career, I mean, the kind of spotlight in the world was super on Middle East anyway. So the artists from the Middle East were like showing morning, day, and night, wherever they were. I don't even care if you were just came to the scene as an artist. There was such exposure and opportunity. And I I, um, I was with two different galleries representing me at that time, not the one I'm with now. Um, and or maybe three even. And, and it was a lot of shows and everything was really fast. My kids were still really young. So I was... I felt crazy. And every time I turned around, there was another large, impactful kind of event going on in the Middle East. Like the whole Arab Spring started and what that meant on top of the wars. And you couldn't catch your breath. And I felt, I think, very internally exhausted, you know, and I was exhausted what I felt what the world wanted for me as an artist, too. Um, and what everyone around me there, my 
good friends or even close, even acquaintances from that part of the world, everybody wanted us talking about war. And I mean, that is my life subject, but it was, you know, the kind of sensationalism that happens and without much opportunity to reflect. And I'm, I'm much, I don't like to just do, I'm, I'm again, I'm not a documentary photographer. I don't like to just respond. Oh, this happened, make this kind of work. So, you know, Tunisia now has gotten rid of their leader. Egypt, make a work about it. You know, everybody wanted these things like these thematic shows and these thematic ideas. And, and I'm very suspicious about that kind of very quick response. But I, in the same time, I understand as artists or just human beings, that's what you're, you know, exhilarated by positive or negative. That's the thing that kind of captures your entire attention. And, um, but I'm always afraid of art in that time because it could be quite dogmatic. It could be quite, uh, you don't really know what this is, right? You could be excited and like two minutes later you could find out that this winds up being the worst thing that ever happened to a country or to a people. I'm sorry, my, my chair is making squeaky noises. Um, so I, I try in those times to, to look at something I try to like not look at the media or look at this, this sort of immediate response. I usually go to natural spaces to kind of consider the world. And I use that a lot in my work. Um, so I made like a, a, a video called Thora at that time, which means revolution, to think about the cycles of, of life and uh, you know how destruction can bring about a rejuvenation and a possibility. Um, and not to be dogmatic and not to just like, oh, I'm going to use this and talk about this. And, and that's just not the kind of artist I am. There are artists that could do that really well. It's just not who I am. Um, but I was really, really, really exhausted by these trauma narratives. I was just felt like everybody just wanted that kind of work from Arab artists. It just felt so pretentious. I don't know. I just felt like to assume that's all we had to say or do. So I decided that I wanted to make a project that had nothing to do with war and revolution or the Arab Spring or occupation or forced migrations. I mean, I thought I would just do something, honestly, that was a little bit romantic and aesthetic and just pleased me. And I didn't think that anybody, I wouldn't even, I thought I wouldn't never even show it to anybody. The first two or three years I was doing Silsila, I didn't even know what it was. I mean, I just, I, I just thought it just gave me like a lot of uh, joy to do it. And I wanted to use, I, I often very inspired by texts and I wanted to use a kind of a very pre-colonial text. So I worked with Ibn Battuta's Al-Rihla, The Travels. And um, I loved his sort of journeying, the idea that he was on this, um, you know, journey to go to Mecca and have Hajj, and then he winds up traveling the world. I love the story, these underknown stories, not us to us Arabs, but to the world. Everyone was talking about Marco Polo, right? And I'm like, he actually put way more miles than it was way before him. And the fact that he is considered the, the kind of grandfather or the originator of the travel log. And I come from photography. So the travel log is a very, you know, big thing. Like this is what a lot of my field was originates on. And in, especially in colonial times, like to go somewhere and to make these pictures. But I wanted to think about like going somewhere and making pictures and not again, being the tourist, but thinking about the, the innate, um, curiosity one has about life, about another place, a place you've never been. And, you know, I think as a child, that's what I felt like just having to move so much. I, I didn't experience it as so tragic. Like maybe my sister did. She hated moving. I, I really was always super fascinated by every country we moved to and places that we started with. And I just wanted to kind of tap into that. So I, I think the way he wrote was very significant because it's kind of like a map basically to where to go. He was so specific. He was so detailed. I mean, the kind of notes he took, the meticulous observations of the places. And I was like, can I find these places? It, it just was like a, a road guide. And for me, 
as an artist, I don't ever have that. I, I have to be so abstract to arrive at the project. I really, it's a leap of faith to get there because I don't know what the ingredients will be to make the work. I have to get at least halfway through to kind of make sense of it. But this was like, oh, I, I've always been kind of envious of artists. I like, I have a practice where I have these like points on my geo map and I'm going to visit <laughs> each one of them. I make a, a documentation when I get there. So I thought, okay, I'll do that. I'll just do every place that, and, but what happened is, is that, you know, he's a 14th century traveler. It's very hard to find these places. It was so off grid. It was so off what you could find on a map. And I had to meet people, talk to people, uh, be passed from person to person, to group to group, from village to village, from oasis to oasis, to, to start finding some of these places that he went. And then it just sort of became a little unnecessary in the end to like, be so rigid with the book. And because I met all kinds of peoples and I went to all kinds of places and I just organically let the project develop. I just started saying, okay, this was the idea that I would retrace his steps, but I'm going to retrace his steps, but be on a journey and just see what happens. Just like him, like, what do you discover? Where do you end up staying more at? What becomes very special to you? And um, yeah, I don't know. I don't think I showed anything for three years to anybody. And then I've started showing it to a couple of like curators and one of them was a curator, soon to be curator of the Maldives Pavilion for the Venice Biniale. And she's like, I want this project for our, our show because I started talking about the topic of water so much because this is what I found in the Middle East. The, the, you know, you grow up thinking everything is about oil, but water becomes that other unsustainable resource that is uh, you know, creating a power fight structure and, and a, a future that you can't see. Like these are the next wars and everywhere I went, the story of water kept coming up, but I still didn't make it very political. I mean, it's not that political of a work, although I talk about it maybe in my narrative when I, when I speak about it or when I write about it. And there are some images that definitely like show you know, that water is, a, you know, a, a resource that is endangered in this and what's happening, the desertification of the Middle East and North Africa, the the transport life. But morally, more than anything, it's a very spiritual project. It's a very beautiful project. Um, and yeah, I gave myself a lot of allowances to just travel and not know where I was going and get lost and uh, not just follow a very specific route and and even, you know, as the project materialized into the book that you're, that you have and uh, had major exhibitions, thankfully, a lot of the other exhibitions I had later on were like, would you like to visit more countries that are, did you quite, you know, finish? And I'm like, I would love to keep going. So, I mean, going to Morocco and Algeria came after Venice, came after that book was done. And I, I, it was that kind of thing that a project can just shift and evolve and, uh, transform and you know it you know it's like you don't have to have these like preset rules like you are the artist you are the author of this like you can do what you want and I mean I couldn't go to I think in the end I there was three countries missing from that project I got to the borders of them but I couldn't get in for visa issues yeah. and if I get a chance to go that to them in the future I will add them <laughs> into the project I don't care if it it's five years later or 10 years later. I mean, who it's, that's arbitrary to me, right? And you're the artist. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, well, I guess, so then the meaning did change from like your initial inception of this project and then throughout your journey, it just developed into what the project ended up. Becoming. I think it's layered. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, change is you know, the easier way I say it, but I think there are different layers of the project. And so there's the layer of like resources and, you know, endangered sites and the precarious of like uh, populations living in certain places that are going to be uprooted. It's definitely a story of migration. 
you know, but I, when I first went on that project, you know, I was really thinking about using the backgrounds of the Middle East, like using the landscape as the protagonist, because I've always been the protagonist. I am the country. I am the site. I am the people. And I wanted to be a very minor uh person in it. I wanted the land to be the land and to be the protagonist. And that was the first original idea with Salsala. And, you know, what else but desert to talk about the Middle East and North Africa? It's such an interesting entity. And, and it had been backdrops of my work before, not for a, a context of uh, trying to say I'm Middle Eastern or I'm from the desert. Not that. I always just thought it was a very uh, interesting landscape because it, it's it's a it's a very it's, it cycles on itself. It's very malleable. It always shifts and changes in in minutes. I mean, when you go to walk in a desert, if some sand you know moves with the wind, you lose your footsteps. It looks different. You have no idea where you're going. But not a lot of not a lot of things grow in the desert, right? So to me, it had this great. It's a great story of this of life, like it always appears to be changing, but it's always recycling on itself, right? And we're not, we're still performing the same mistakes we have done thousands of years ago and cycling. So I've always loved the paradox of the desert. And that's why I've always used it. It's not that most people would know that's why I used it in my backgrounds, but that's why I always used it. I felt like I, I'm into metaphor and I thought that the poetry of it was very interesting. I'm also a minimalist. So I like the way that it, it looks in a space. And yes, the other part of it is that I grew up in a desert. I grew up around a desert. I live in a desert now. I live in Tucson, Arizona. Even the United States, I live in a desert. Um, and so it's a very, again, I, I love natural spaces and I'm much more comfortable in them. So I I thought I'd make the, the, the desert like the protagonist and think about it, the desert as something that peoples of the Middle East and North Africa, right? Arabs, Kurds, Amazigh, whatever, you know, all of us have and share as our identity. We all either live on it or surrounded by it. And the desert doesn't respect borders, right? It drifts unimposed. It crosses boundaries. It doesn't. And so to me, it was a shared identity to make that the protagonist so that was what I was doing at first. I wanted to go to all the deserts in the Middle East and North Africa. And that's how the journey started. So that's layers into it. Then I'm there and then I start to see like the kind of logic of the desert, starting to see the visualization. I started to understand Islamic art aesthetics that I had never really, I mean, conceptually I got it. Like I, of course, have taken tons of Islamic art history classes but you don't really ever understand it until you're in the desert because the desert aesthetic motif, like what are those early artisans seeing, right? What are those first Sufi or Muslim practitioners seeing? They're seeing the mirage. They're all seeing the doubling and their reflection. It is what the desert does, right? In that doubling and doubling and doubling that mathematical, it's what the desert does. And so I started seeing that. So that became a layer into the work. And then the water issue became a layer into the work. And this idea that maybe other people saw into it, like this journeyer, this person, like the, the protagonist, me as the female going through it. You know, there's a feminist read into it, right? If about to being a man have gone through it, but now there's a woman going into these remote places. I mean, those weren't my intentions, but, you know, I always think the work is complete in the end by the audiences and how they perceive and read into the work. You know, I sort of put it out there and how it's received and understood is not under my control and it's part of the work itself. Hmm. Well, okay. I'm not sure about this question, but I'm going to ask it anyways. And then if you don't know how to answer it, it's fine. Um, but it's, well, so as I was looking through um, some of the pieces of this project, I noticed, well, it seemed to be like there was some superimposition in some of the photos. So like where you would have a circular image and then like a, like different backdrops. And that's so the book. that's only in the book. Aha. Well, so, so when we were designing the book with Aperture, I wanted, um, so like the designer, the graphic designer of the book, and I talked and the publisher quite a bit about 
what a book could be. And what I, what I knew I didn't want it to be was a documentation of the project. Mm. I wanted it to be like an art piece itself. And I wanted to be kind of experiential of the experience, right? Like what it would feel like. So remember I just said to you a few minutes ago that the project is layered. Mm -hmm. I wanted to layer, I wanted to collapse. I wanted to break boundaries and borders between time and places and geographies. I wanted, but I still wanted to contain the work. It's still information. There is documents of what, what these things are. So I thought of it as a sketchbook or like, you know, like when you travel, you might just start doing collage work and picking up stuff and, you know, layering them on each other and you pick up, you know, I wanted to feel like that. Uh, and, and that's why there's some things outside of Silsila that's in there. There, there are some works that are not Silsila that are in that book, which is called Sand Rushes In, right? The book that Aperture published. Um, because they were made during the same time as Silsila, but they were the projects that I was showing to the world while Silsila was hidden. But I do think they were informing each other, you know? And so these were the things that I was interested in. They kind of were like a Rubik's cube that you can't quite puzzle, you can't quite fit, <laughs> you know? Um, and I think some people are confounded by it. I've definitely had artists saying, well, why would you do that? You should only make the work the work. And I'm like, that, that's most books operate as documentations. But I come from photography and a big part of its um, its history is in book arts and that creative boundary breaking interruption and also the interruption of the colonial lens and gaze is something I'm always interested in. I don't want the rules that were set to me that this is the text and this is the image and this is the way it works. It's like, I love when experience especially aesthetic experience comes forward. I mean, my work always has these meanings. I actually get very bored by artwork that's just aesthetic and there's nothing to it. I need the meaning. I need the story or narrative. I need the intellectual work. I need to do some work. I don't want to just like something pretty. I like pretty things, but you know, that's fine. I want to live around them, but I like not for my art. Um, but yeah, I, I wanted the book to confound even me to remember like that's, these are years apart distances, you know, these are, uh, I don't know how to explain it, but like aesthetic choices that makes you evoke new spaces. The way that Islamic art does, right? You see that kind of tiling or mirroring and expansion. And where do you go? You go to the infinities, you go to your imagining, you go into your space, you go into a spiritual space and then you reflect back to the self. and. And that's the story of the desert. It's so what in the desert, the things that really matter is like your awareness, you know, I mean, it's water, food, shelter, but to, to remember and to keep those things really, really solid, you have to be very aware. You can't just, you know, be on your phone and typing and like be distracted by a million things. You have to be present. And it's hard to do in this day and age when people look at images a million times a day. They see them on their phones. They see them in their internet. They see that everywhere they go, there's we're an image-based society. So to do something surprising with an image is very difficult. So how do you interrupt? How do you trouble that visual space and make that sight something you have to really like consider? And that was part of my design decision. I'm not saying it was the greatest decisions or whatever, or I was brilliant. I'm saying that was the intention. No, I think, I mean, evidently, since I came and asked you about it, it stimulated like my own thinking. And I, um, yeah, I, yeah, immediately, nice. I wanted people to think about it. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it worked as intended. I, <laughs> least I think. Um, if, you get to the, if you get to the part where the, the titles are, mm -hmm. you know, you can start, you start to realize they're separate images because it says for, you know, this plate, you know, background. So you start to realize they're separate pieces. But again, another intention, I wouldn't let any of those texts be on the pages. I just wanted the images to float and hover, you know, like, you remember when you were young and your parents would read you a book or you would like see a cool book with all these visuals and you would just lose yourself in it, right? Imagine, and you don't know what they are. And, you know, I just, I'm a mom. And I like, remember like, it's always like 
reading books to my kids and they would just be looking at the pictures. <laughs> I might have read that book a million times and they still look at those pictures and you can almost see in their eyes, like the, the, they're dancing, right? Like, where are they? Are they part of the story? You know, I love narratives. And so, and, and the imagination and where it could take you. I was a huge daydreamer when I was young. I was always daydreaming. I used to get in trouble in school because I was always daydreaming. And so I, it was so funny that I wanted to be a war photographer because I am not a literal <laughs> person at all, right? And yeah, even when I'm documenting spaces, I was all freaked out doing so slow. I'm like, that's actually the desert, right? <laughs> like, where is my interruption? Where's my performance? I, I, I'm, a, I'm into staging, right? And I'm into fantasy. I'm into magical realism. And some of these things were just like on the nose, right? Like that's the white desert, <laughs> you know? Uh, but yeah, it was good. I, I kind of broke my idea of what I had to do. And I think collectively it's still a lot of imagining, but yeah, it was, it was interesting. Yeah. I enjoy narratives too. Narrative construction is something that's very interesting to me. And I think like a large part of the reason why I ended up creating this podcast, because similar to you, I, I mean, I find that like women of the Middle East and particularly Iraqi women have such a strong past and like have so much to show for them until like more recently where like these really um, negative depictions of women have like shown up in the, and people like don't know any better because this is just what they see everywhere. But I think for me as like a woman who grew up in a household that um, like my parents have always been like super supportive of everything I wanted to do. But at the same time, I was very aware of my own heritage. I think I wanted to find a way to say like, here are women who share like similar heritages to me and who are doing like really amazing things and so yeah to me that's like my the part I play in narrative construction at least on this scale and you know I gotta tell you that you're gonna be like I'm gonna see you in five or ten years and you're gonna be like (laughs) ruling the world if I (laughs) if I could clone you and have like all my students (laughs) you're a very confident interviewer too like you you gave me your questions and I kind of looked at them but I like to just do my thing or whatever I just talk from my from my wherever I'm at but I'm like okay those were really smart questions but the fact is you can just riff off of what somebody's saying and so I always yes huge credit to your parents but huge credit to you but also huge credit to Iraq because Iraqi women are very strong and my kids are like I don't know they think I'm like an ultra-nationalist I'm not (laughs) I do think that I this is why it's so funny to me living in America that people think that women are somehow oppressed women have different conditions there than they have here for sure. I am not putting that down, but they are the strongest women I've ever met from all the countries I've been into the world, especially Iraqi women. I mean, Arab women in general, but especially Iraqi women. And they're known like people like I talk, like I'll be anywhere. I'll be like in Lebanon or I'll be in Egypt. I'll be hanging out. I'll be talking like, they're like, are you Iraqi? Cause you seem, <laughs> you seem like you're Iraqi. And I'm like, yes, I am. Yeah. And I, yeah, I mean, the women are, uh, you think about it, the kind of positions we've held, the kind of advancements. And I don't think anything's changed. I just think that a lot of women have either fled Iraq that were in positions to do so or have died or they've been silenced and they have to be silent. But if you look at the last two years of protests to see the young women on the streets, you know, um, fighting for their rights for Iraq, you know, knowing what they're facing by doing that just just so shows their strength, right? And the refusal to have anything but that. So Yeah. I yeah. It's it's inspiring to like empowering to like keep on keep on pioneering for Iraqi women and women everywhere. And Palestinian women are exactly the same. I mean I have you know I'm really lucky that once I got my citizenship in the United States, I could travel back to the Middle East for long, for when I was undocumented for years, I couldn't go anywhere. But once I got my citizenship, I could go back and I have a career that allows, I mean, doing my research means I can go back all the time, you know, four or five times in the year. And yeah. And so I, I've gotten a very, um, it's not something in my distant past. To me now, I have a living relationship. I, actually, if you look at my work, you could see that change from when I first started going to now. 
I think I was very nostalgic when I first started making work because I was just missing home. I was missing the Middle East. I was missing my culture. And it was sort of framed in that. And then now it's a very different kind of work. But, um, you know, even to be able to take my kids, I mean, before... Before I, I, we, I had a Fulbright in 2014-15. We went to Palestine. We lived there for a year. And it was so amazing. Because I think for my sons, they've always just identified being Black, right? Their father's Black. And they are, in this culture, if you are dark-skinned, you're Black. And that's it. Go through and, the world as that right. is. Yeah. Exactly. And I know they have Arabic names, Mahmoud and Zakaria. But, you know, that's not uncommon in the black community to have Muslim names, right? And so they nothing was really having them to push their Arab identity. And and why anyway? Every time they would open the news, the way that the Middle East is depicted in America it doesn't make you like proud. And no matter what I said, mom, yeah, mom was the Arab, <laughs> and then she made great Arabic food. <laughs> and I think that's the identity. Like my mom is Arab, and the food we like is Arabic food, but or Palestinian Iraqi. When we moved there, they completely changed until this day. I and mean, that was 2014-15. They super, super, they're like, they never say to anybody, I'm just Black. They're like, they identify as being, you know, Black or Arab. And then, you know, I don't know if they even say American. <laughs> they say that they're Black and Arab, right? Like they're Palestinian, especially Palestine, because they got to live there for a year. Yeah. And they... So- Back to you. Uh, yeah. If you could give your younger self any piece of advice, like what would it be? Oh my God. Don't take pictures of yourself because you'll get older one day <laughs> and you'll be like, you don't want to see them anymore. Your uh, <laughs> body is your main stage. Don't take pictures of yourself. <laughs> you have to definitely, you, you know, everybody has to deal with growing older, but you, when you photograph yourself, you have to see it all the time. <laughs> and then your vanity is like, oh, I just have to deal with it. Okay. No, that's not really my advice to myself. I don't know. I mean, I think I, I really, really love the journey I had. And I, the problem I had when I was younger, I still have. I think I still have a lot of, I think this is just being an artist or maybe just being human to have a lot of insecurity, right? And, uh, you know, looking at other people's past and saying, am I doing it wrong? Or um, if this is, I don't know. My husband often says this is just people who have a lot of drive. They have that always doubting in the same time. And I think there was a lot of wasted time worrying, Uh, you know, not worrying, but like just caught up in self-doubt. I mean, I'm the kind of person that could have some major success and then still go five seconds later. I'm like, you know, oh my God, why did it happen? Why me? (laughs) I will have that. And you know, my parents were, they were supportive, but they were, they, they were, they made, they, they raised their kids to be competitive, very, you know, never subtle, like always like be super intense. And so, I don't know, I guess I would tell myself to enjoy things more. I've learned to do that. I learned a lot from my husband, especially on that, to like, try to like take it in and not always just look for the next thing. Cause the beautiful parts of life, they're always fleeting. It's usually you're living in the most conflicted, difficult, hard parts, right? And you, I don't want to be someone that's just comfortable in the hard parts. I want to be comfortable in the good parts too, right? So enjoy those moments. And so I'm trying to do that right now. I'm like, this big thing happened and you should enjoy it and not get terrorized about like what expectation has to be at that level. And, and I, I always work through it, but I just want less emotion attached to the, the freaking out part, you know? Um, I mean, that's the most honest thing I could say. People think I'm very confident. They always need like, Oh, you're super confident. You know, you're doing self-assured. I'm like, yeah, I give great advice. I'm a teacher. I might look that as a mom, but it doesn't mean that I don't, suffer with the same things, the anxieties everybody else does, right? Um, and I, I want to make a difference. You know, I want to do well. I want to make my grandfather and my parents and my grandmother proud. I want to be someone that contributes. I don't want to waste the chances I've been given, right? 
I want to use my platform in every way from being a good person to, you know, a young woman I don't know who writes to me to like, <laughs> you know, my children to the things that I want out of my life to my I mean, and it's hard. And it's, I think, you know, we, we put so much on our shoulders. Like we have to do everything right all the time. Sometimes I don't want to do anything. I just get exhausted. And I'm like, I can't be this person. This is not real, but it is real. And that's why you get up every day and do it. So I guess I would just tell myself to just enjoy the good moments a little bit more because you always know there's a lot of work to do and something hard is always going to happen. So enjoy when things happen a little bit more. And so finally, I just wanted to know how, like, well, obviously you're probably feeling some excitement around this new fellowship. Um, And I'm wondering, well, do you have any plans now knowing that? Yeah. Well, the Guggenheim is a, it's a proposal, right? You, I mean, you get it for your life work, but you also get it for your proposal. Like you have to do both. So I'm, I'm afraid even saying this in public, but uh yeah my my project's based around Iraq and Iraqi women I'm really in that space right now um I've done a lot of projects about Palestine and this is where my attention is in this moment I'm um spent the last three years in a dark room in printing press doing uh albumens and photograph reviewers and and sculptures and stuff like that. Um, but now I'm, I'm working with new technologies like LIDARs, uh, LIDAR scanners, and uh, I'm dealing with texts and, and, and constitutional law, the, the family clause, the personal article clauses. I'm dealing with um, materials uh, that are very non-narrative to create narrative. Um, but it's growing as a project and I have to go there in order for me to really fully realize it, which is going to be hard, definitely in COVID. It's hard anyway, but like, but in COVID, I haven't seen my half brothers. I have two half brothers that live in Erbil. I haven't seen them in like five years since they were, used to live in Jordan. Um, my, my father passed away a few years ago and they're, they live there. So I want to see them and so this is my goal. I, I don't know if it's going to be this fall or the spring. Um, the last four times I tried to go to Iraq, a major war started. <laughs> so I, I, I just want to be flexible and how it happens and not like overthink it too much. And the project is still like expanding um, I'm on sabbatical this semester, so I'm just doing a lot of the reading and research and sketching and imagining and walking every day an hour to like allow space for that. But I really do feel like, yeah, but I do feel I have to go to really make it. And the great thing about having a Guggenheim that, you know, universities know that's very prestigious. So they give you more time off. So I will have time off in the spring. Um, I just don't know what COVID's going to be. And that's the big factor, you know? I mean, I'm vaccinated, but where will the strains be? And I definitely don't want to harm or put people out. And Iraq is definitely struggling, you know? The United States is struggling, but they don't have the hospital resources the United States have. So we'll see. That's so cool. Well, thank you so, so, so yeah. much for meeting with me today. fun.